I had a sort of revelation lately while going through some anthologies of poetry. I think I've mentioned before that uh, I used to be sort of an obsessive, a completist when it came to the lives of poets and writers. I like to find a biography, their letters, and then just go through their works just to get the whole sense of them or to pretend at least that I could. But I realized if you go looking for uh, anthologies of poetry that are meant for people who don't spend all their time, like I do, reading poetry, and if they happen to have potted biographies of the poets beneath each entry, uh, very often if you find a very good one uh, where the editors are poets as well or teachers, very often what you get in those little biographies is enough. It is, uh, you get a, a, a flash of anecdote and it is enough for you to hold on to. And I realized also that these little biographies are sort of what I'm doing, what I have been doing with this podcast, just trying to share not the 700-page biography, but the bits and pieces from those biographies that have moved me so much. And in this case, if you go looking for a series of books called Poem a Day, there are three volumes. I only have two of them. Uh, the first one is edited by Karen McCosker and Nicholas Albury. And the second one is edited by one of my favorite poets, Laurie Scheck. Uh, you'll be able to find everything that I'm reading from tonight. And interestingly enough, the, the sense of revelation came from a fairly well-known poet, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Look at what one of the little biographies says about her beneath one of her poems. It says, As a child, Elizabeth Barrett lived in a mock Ottoman castle in Herefordshire, England, and began writing poems at the age of four. Her health was frail, but she was an extremely bright young woman and excelled in her studies of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. She and her father were very close, and in time, Mr. Barrett's overprotective nature complicated the courtship between Elizabeth and Robert Browning, which started after she praised Browning's verses in one of her own poems. Mutually impressed by each other's work, they began a regular exchange of letters. Mr. Barrett, the father, finally permitted uh, Browning to visit Elizabeth. After almost a hundred subsequent visits, the couple eloped to Italy in 1846. Keep in mind that Elizabeth was born in 1806, so she elopes with him when she's 40. Uh, and her father refused to speak to either Elizabeth or answer her letters after her marriage, and father and daughter were never reconciled. Now, how about that? How long did it take me to read that? Maybe a minute. Um, that gives you... Uh, just a great sense of a creative life, the ups and downs of it. But then go to uh, the biography of Elizabeth Barrett Browning from the, uh, the other volume in this series, and this is what it says. An invalid living in Wimpole Street under the possessive eye of her father, who refused to allow any of his children to marry, Elizabeth Barrett Browning was approaching her 40s and seemed destined to the life of a recluse. On the 20th of May, 1845, after a long exchange of letters, she allowed Robert Browning, who was six years her junior, 
to visit her. In his first letter he had written, I love your verses with all my heart, dear Miss Barrett, and I love you, too. And on the 12th of September, 1846, she secretly married him, eventually settling in Florence and giving birth to a son in her 45th year. Uh, the sonnet in question that's on this page was the penultimate sonnet, penultimate poem from the 43 Sonnets from the Portuguese, which was written during Browning's courtship. Robert Browning called her, quote, little Portuguese because of her olive skin. And the sonnets mark Elizabeth's passage from hesitation through doubt and disbelief to joy at their mutual love. She kept the sonnets secret from Robert for the first three years of marriage. She chose to reveal them when the death of his mother precipitated a crisis of faith in him, and it seems that her intention was to demonstrate the fluid and shape-shifting but eternal nature of love, love defying death. And doesn't that show you something as well? Uh, both entries are telling you something about the poet, and uh, both of them do it in uh, radically different ways. And let's see here, where else can we go? These are all wonderful. I wish I was able to write paragraphs about poets in this way. This one is about a poet named Laura Riding Jackson, who lived from 1901 to 1991. And it says that she was born Laura Reichenthal. Uh, the poet changed her name after her marriage to Louis Gottschalk in 1922 and published her first poems as Laura Riding Gottschalk, apparently finding Laura Reichenthal Gottschalk too cumbersome. She and Robert Graves were romantically involved after her first marriage ended in 1925, and they lived together in Dea in Mallorca until the Spanish Civil War forced them to flee in 1936. After returning to the United States, Riding met Schuyler Jackson, and they married in 1941. And the Jacksons, together, retreated from the literary world and made their living by growing citrus in northern Florida. In the end, Riding Jackson renounced poetry completely and disowned her earlier work. In the introduction to her selected poems, published in 1970, she wrote this, I judge my poems to be things of the first water as poetry, but that does not make them better than poetry. And I think poetry obstructs general attainment of something better in our linguistic way of life than we have. Let's see who's next here. Isn't that a life I just read? That's, that's still just uh, incredible. Uh, this is Lorraine Nadeker, says, uh, who lived from 1903 to 1970. Uh, born in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, Lorraine Nadeker lived in rural isolation on Black Hawk Island along the banks of Rock River in Wisconsin. After her parents died, she was left with two houses that were taken from her in foreclosure and with very little money. She worked for several years as a cleaning woman at a local hospital, and in a letter to the poet Louis Sukofsky, she joked, I should draw a picture of myself, covered with dust mops, pails, kitchen cleanser, cloths, brooms, etc., 
wondering where I am down those long halls, past all those doors. Nadeker was an intensely private person, and many who knew her, even her second husband, had no idea that she wrote poetry at all. Just little lessons, little insights, little sparks that we get from, from these people. This is just a sentence about Robert Penn Warren, who lived from 1905 to 1989. And uh, the poem that's excerpted is from a long poem he wrote about John James Audubon. And the name of the poem is Audubon, A Vision, which I think might be worth uh, taking a look at. And it says, uh, it says about it, Warren, Robert Penn Warren reported that while working on the poem, he was, quote, writing at night, going to sleep, and waking up in the morning early, revising by shouting it all out loud in a Land Rover going to Yale. That is one way to commute to work, because, of course, he did teach at Yale. Uh, that's a way to do it. And, oh, this is a nice little sentence as well about D.H. Lawrence, who lived from 1885 to 1930. When I think of myself, I always, I always say I have a uh, a sort of unexplainable but um, enduring and ineradicable uh, weird nostalgia for Britain, for England. And I can remember going there and uh, going, going to the place in person and just feeling as if I belonged there uh, in a way that I never felt about any other place. And so it is nice to read about D.H. Lawrence, who... As I said, he was born in 1885, and it says that in 1912, he left England and traveled through Mexico, Italy, Ceylon, New Zealand, Tahiti, France, Australia, and the United States. And I think a great deal of, uh, of his work was uh, done in New Mexico. And he did this because he considered England, quote, a long, gray, ashy coffin. A long, gray, ashy coffin. That's what he thinks about England. And it's nice to get uh, that perspective uh, as well. And who is this here? This is the poet Edward Thomas, who I think I featured in an episode uh, a few weeks ago. He lived from 1878 to 1917. And as you can guess, uh, whenever a poet dies, uh, a British or an American poet dies, uh, between 1914 and 1918, you can usually guess uh, where that death took place, and you'll hear about that here. Uh, the English poet Edward Thomas was born of Welsh parents in the London suburb of Lambeth. A precocious child interested in nature, he began writing and publishing his natural observations at the age of 17, and his first book, The Woodland Life, was published before he was 20 years old. Thomas worked very hard as a prolific author of essays, biographies, and criticism to support his wife and two children. He published some verse under the pseudonym Edward Eastaway, but became serious about his poetry only after being encouraged by Robert Frost, who was in England uh, at the time getting his first two books published and whom uh, Edward Thomas greatly admired. Edward Thomas joined the British Army in 1915 
and was killed at the Battle of Arras in France two years later. And here's the kicker here. Uh, he wrote almost all of his poems in his diary between December 1914 and January of 1917. Now I think uh, if you took my notebooks of whatever I've been working on and only chose three years out of all of that, you could say I've been writing poetry seriously since maybe uh, the year 1999 or 98 or something. Um, I don't think you would get very much. And Edward Thomas, on the other hand, was able to get a great deal of beautiful work done in just those uh, three years after he was encouraged uh, by Robert Frost. And this is the American poet William Cullen Bryant, who was born in 1794 and died in 1878. That in itself, think of uh, the changes in British and American poetry that took place uh, during that time, 1794 to 1878, he would have uh, been old enough uh, to have a bad reaction, I imagine, to Walt Whitman by that time. Uh, it says, William Cullen Bryant was born in Cunningham, Massachusetts, and published his first poem at the age of 10 in the Northampton, Hampshire Gazette. Because of his family's financial situation, he was unable to attend Yale as he planned, but he passed the bar exam and worked as a lawyer in Plainfield, Massachusetts until 1825, when he moved to New York as the editor of the New York Review. In 1827, Bryant became editor-in-chief and part owner of the New York Evening Post, from which platform he spoke out against slavery and on behalf of other causes. After publishing four books of poems, he became the country's most prominent poet and the best-known American poet abroad. Despite his long career as an outspoken journalist, he wrote in a letter to his friend Richard Henry Dana, I do not like politics any better than you do, but they get only my mornings, and politics and a bellyful are better than poetry and starvation. And I guess I would have to agree with him. Uh, who else is here? This is the uh, British poet John Clare, who lived from 1793 to 1864. And it says, mental illness and the memory of his first love and ideal woman, Mary Joyce, plagued the romantic poet John Clare. During his first breakdown in the year 1836, he was confined to High Beach Asylum in Essex, where he remained for several years. In 1841, he wandered off the grounds and headed for his home in Northamptonshire, walking for four days without food. He had hoped to find Mary upon his return, but found out that she had died three years earlier. Imagine, uh, imagine that. Uh, you escape the asylum, walk four days without food, and you discover uh, that the love of your life died three years earlier. Uh, his wife, because he was married, not to Mary, but to a woman named Martha Patty Turner, she found John Clare's insanity and obsession with Mary Joyce too difficult to handle, as many of us would, and Clare was again committed, as the title of the poem on this page suggests, written in prison, was composed during his subsequent stays 
at the Northampton Lunatic Asylum, where he remained until his death from a paralytic seizure in 1864. In his book Other Traditions, the American poet John Ashbery cites John Clare as one of his favorite poets, and he explains that, quote, another side of Clare's modernity is a kind of nakedness of vision that we are accustomed to, at least in America, from the time of Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson down to Robert Lowell and Allen Ginsberg. Like these poets, Clare grabs a hold of you. No, he doesn't grab a hold of you. He's already there, talking to you before you've arrived on the scene, telling you about himself, about the things that are closest and dearest to him. And it would no more occur to him to do otherwise than it would occur to Whitman to stop singing you his song of himself. And I like that, especially because in a lot of these little biographies, uh, you hear quotes from other poets like that. And in many cases, for me, I hear from poets whose work I really don't care for, and uh, John Ashbery is one of them. So it's nice to see this uh, really generous comment from uh, John Ashbery. Let's see the next one. The next one is the uh, American poet Amy Clampett, who lived from 1920 to 1994. And, I, and I'm thinking as I'm reading these, um, there's such variety here. And I wonder if you read the potted biographies of poets born around 1980, uh, the ones that are prominent today, uh, would there be as much variety? Uh, maybe there would be in their upbringing, in their childhood, and, and the rest. But I wonder, what does it all sort of even out when they all eventually say they got their MFA from such and such a place and they ended up teaching at such and such a place? Um, I wonder if that's just uh, uh, a cliche that I'm giving the generation uh, unfairly or if that would actually be the case. But look at what it says. Look what it says about Amy Clampett. Uh, born in New Providence, Iowa, Amy Clampett earned her B.A. from Grinnell College and attended graduate school at Columbia University, but she left without completing her degree, though Clampett began writing poetry in high school. She focused on fiction for many years and did not publish her first poem until 1978, in other words, when she's almost 60 years old, but she published her first poem in The New Yorker, so that's not too bad. Uh, her first collection, The Kingfisher, appeared in 1983 when Amy Clampett was 63 years old, and the collected poems of Amy Clampett was published in 1997, three years after her death from ovarian cancer at the age of 74. And here's a one, another wonderful comment from a fellow poet. Uh, Mary Jo Salter recalls her first encounter with Clampett this way, quote, tall, seemingly weighing nothing at all in her ballet slippers, she had a lightness of foot and manner that put one in mind immediately of a child. Her dark brown hair, graying only a little then, was put up behind with a hippie's leather barrette, though she had also trained two wide chin-length locks to fall over her rather comically large ears. She was less able, though she tried, with long, elegant fingers that were always flying upward. She tried to hide a beautiful gap-toothed smile, and she listened intently 
But when she spoke, she became a rapid, revved-up, high-pitched machine that rarely paused except for an attack of the giggles. I like that. And this is the poet Thomas James, who lived from 1946 to 1974. And it says, Thomas James published one book of poems only, Letters to a Stranger, before his death by suicide, not long after the deaths of both of his parents. He took as the epigraph for his book these sentences from James Baldwin's novel, Giovanni's Room, which says, Perhaps everybody has a garden of Eden. I don't know, but they have scarcely seen their garden before they see the flaming sword. And then, perhaps, life only offers the choice of remembering the garden or forgetting it. Either or. It takes great strength to remember. It takes another kind of strength to forget. It takes a hero to do both. And this is the poet uh, Michael Field. And this is another remarkable thing. Uh, if anyone tells you that a poet can only be one or two things, or have only one or two trajectories in their stories, listen to this. Uh, Michael Field is the pseudonym of Catherine Harris Bradley, 1846 to 1914, and Edith Emma Cooper, 1862 to 1913. These prolific collaborators were close relatives, aunt and niece, respectively, and together they authored 28 plays and eight collections of poetry. They also used the pseudonyms Aaron and Isla Lee, as well as the epithet the author of Borgia, after the publication of their anonymous play of that title. After 1884, they used the name Michael Field exclusively, and their works received high praise until their true identities were discovered. In 1878, Cooper and Bradley moved from Birmingham to Bristol to attend University College, where they became known on campus for their theatrical clothes, their interest in paganism, and their use of elaborate nicknames among their circle of friends. Their plays explored themes that shocked many Victorians, including atheism, feminine sexuality, homosexuality, and women's rights. After receiving a letter from Robert Browning, who addressed his correspondence to Michael Field, Cooper confessed the truth about their authorship, and the women became close friends with Robert and Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who faithfully kept their secret, agreeing with Bradley that the two had, quote, many things to say that the world will not tolerate from a woman's lips. And, let's see. And this is from uh, a guy named Edwin Muir, 1887 to 1959, uh, someone whose grave I was able to actually see up in the uh, Orkney Islands back in 2015. And when I arrived in Orkney, and I knew that uh, Edwin Muir was sort of the poet uh, 
of Orkney uh, alongside George Mackay Brown. Uh, but I knew Edwin Muir for other reasons, as you'll see. Um, I made sure I got off the, the plane in Kirkwall and took the bus into Kirkwall proper and headed for the bookstore that I knew would be there and headed for the shelves of Faber poetry that I also guessed would probably be there. Um, my little bit of uh, sort of uh, commemorating my arrival there was to buy the selected poems of Edwin Muir. But this is what it says about him. Uh, Scottish poet Edwin Muir was born in the Orkney Islands. When he was 14 years old, his family relocated to Glasgow, hoping to find work. But they lived in poverty, and within five years, both of his parents and two of his brothers had died. Though he left school at the age of 11 to work in a beer-bottling factory, Muir was an enthusiastic autodidact. He began writing in earnest after he moved to London in 1919, and he began to teach, translate, and work as a journalist. And, of course, with his wife, uh, Willa, uh, Willa Muir, um, he is credited with introducing the English-speaking world to the works of Franz Kafka with their translations of The Castle of the Trial in the Penal Colony, America, and other works. That is where I first came across uh, the, the Muir couple was in my first copies of Kafka. And so it's wonderful that he has this entirely other life that is spun out. Um, and it's amazing to think that this guy who started on Orkney ended up uh, translating the works of uh, Kafka from Prague. Let's see. Just a few more here. This is, uh, I think I mentioned in other episodes, it's great fun to come across uh, shortcuts that just get you into something uh, immediately, like just uh, uh, plugging something into the wall and suddenly you have uh, a, uh, a source of electricity and power right there. These little, these little bits of life are the things that do it for me. And this, we might as well get him in here because he's been mentioned many times. This is what it says about uh, Robert Browning himself, 1812 to 1889. Uh, Robert Browning never went to school. His education, coming from the 6,000 volumes in his father's library and the occasional tutor. He dropped out of London University in his second term and he began traveling and he says, Italy was my university. That's like Melville saying that uh, the whaling ship was his Harvard and his Yale, isn't it? And he says that his poem, Sordello, published when he was just 28, was widely ridiculed for its obscurity. And here's a not-so-generous remark from a fellow poet. Uh, uh, Tennyson said that of its 5,800 lines, the poem, Sordello, that there were just two that he could comprehend. The first line... Uh, who will may hear Sordello's story told. And the last line, who would has heard Sordello's story told. And Tennyson also remarked that both of these lines were lies. And I enjoy that a lot. Um, at the age of 33, Browning began a romance with Elizabeth Barrett, who inspired his love poems. And among his most popular poetry 
in his lifetime were Men and Women and the long poem called The Ring in the Book. His last poems, Azolando, were published on the day of his death, and he was buried on the 31st of December, 1889, in Westminster Abbey. Let's see. Let's see who else we have here. Oh, here we have Alexander Pope, 1688-1744. Uh, the largely self-educated son of a linen draper, Alexander Pope was a precocious poet, producing publishable work by the age of 12, the age at which a tubercular infection of his spine crippled his growth. And here's the, uh, the part that I like the best. He achieved financial independence through his translations of Homer, buying a villa, a villa in Twickenham where he lived with his mother. Um, I can't think of a, a get-rich-quick scheme that is more likely to fail these days than saying, oh yes, please let me translate Homer. But maybe I'm wrong about that. I think Emily Wilson, at least. Uh, although I don't know if she's buying villas in Twickenham. Um, or if she has financial independence from them, but she's definitely made a splash with her recent translations of the Odyssey and just recently of the Iliad. Uh, just two more here, then we'll call it a night. I could do this. Uh, I could do this all night. Let's see. Okay, I may have read all of them already. Yeah, I'll leave you with this one. And might as well read the poem, too. This is a wonderful poem. This is from uh, William Butler Yeats, uh, 13th of June, 1865, to January 28th, 1939. And this is uh, the footnote, or first of all, this is the poem, The Lake Isle of Innisfree. This poem that we all know so well. I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive for the honeybee, and live alone in the bee-loud glade. Those L's in that line are wonderful. And live alone in the bee-loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings. There midnight's all a glimmer, and noon a purple glow, and evening full of linnet's wings. I will arise and go now, for always, night and day, I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore, while I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's gray, I hear it in the deep heart's core. And those of you who have heard Yeats read this poem in the very particular way that he does um, will understand why it's distracting to read this poem out loud because I hear him doing it in the very weird way that he does. And I think I'll just add that on at the end of the episode if I can find it online. But this is the little note that it says about Yeats. How do you uh, just write a little paragraph about this poem and about Yeats? Well, this is uh, one way to do it, and I think they did a great job. It says, Yeats was born of Irish Protestant origins, 
the eldest son of a painter who was married to a shop owner's daughter. The early poems of Yeats was written in 1890. Uh, this early, sorry, this early poem of Yeats was written in 1890. I still had the ambition, he wrote, formed in Sligo in my teens, of living in imitation of Thoreau on Innisfree, a little island in Loch Gill, and when walking through Fleet Street in London, very homesick, I heard a little trickle of water and saw a fountain in a shop window which balanced a little ball upon its jet, and I began to remember lake water, and from the sudden remembrance came my poem Innisfree, my first lyric with anything in its rhythm of my own music. And in later life, he wrote to Miss Ruth Watt, a very young admirer of his poems. He says, please don't think the Lake Isle of Innisfree is better than all the rest, for I don't. But you can't, uh, uh, even someone like Yeats does not have control over the poems the people uh, of his that people gravitate to. Uh, another admirer of this poem was Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote to Yeats from Samoa to say it had laid him under a spell, quote, it is so quaint and airy, simple and artful, and eloquent to the heart. Will arise and go now and go to Innisfree and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive for the honey bee, and live alone in the bee lound glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow. Dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings. There midnight's all a glimmer and noon a purple glow. And evening full of brilliant wings. I will arise and go now for always night and day. I hear late water lapping with low sounds by the shore. While I stand on the roadway, or on the pavement's grey, I hear it in the deep heart's core. 